Good morning. I'm Jim Mohart. Today we will be reading from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, and verses 23 to 27, which can be found on page 813 in the Pew Bible. I'll give you a second to find that in the Pew Bible. That's Matthew 8, 1 through 17, and 23 through 27. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came up forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I say to you, with no, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and her fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to feel, fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases." Continuing at verse 23. And when he got to the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went to him and, awoke, and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Thanks. Hey, let me welcome you again, and let me make a quick uh, announcement, just kind of an update, and I'll pray for us, and we'll dive into the text. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since we voted as a church to change our name officially from Leewood Baptist Church to Hope Community Church, and we're kind of living in this adolescent phase between the two. We're uh, 
have been something and we're becoming something and we're kind of in this middle space. So I wanted just to let you know a couple quick updates. We are working with an artist on a logo and we're close to having one that we're pretty excited about. Uh, so once that's ready, we'll turn over the website and kind of officially on the interwebs, you can find us as Hope Community Church. In the meantime, still keep using our regular website. Uh, we're not too um, like uptight about it or too concerned about it. Obviously, like we're taking this really slow, and it's in keeping with actually our hope with the name change. It wasn't to change our church of who we are. It was simply to reflect what God's already doing here. And so name or not, we're still the same church. And so some of what you're experiencing is just kind of us going, hey, this is something we want to do, but we're not trying to rush anything or push anything uh, really fast or hard. So we just wanted you to know that we, we did vote that. We still are pursuing that. You haven't heard very much about it. And our hope is by the end of the year, uh, you would have um, an easy way to point your friends on, on the website uh, to know where to go. We'd have a, a new sign that's up, or at least a temporary version of a new sign that's up, and um, wanted you to kind of know what's happening there. We'll give some more information in the days ahead, but um, one thing that's important there, we'll file a, a doing business as so you can write checks uh, to Hope Community Church, but at this point, we can't cash those checks. So if you're writing checks, please keep making those out to Leewood Baptist Church, um, and if you haven't done that, we probably have called you already, but um, we'll stay kind of Leewood Baptist Church uh, financially through the end of the year, and then we'll turn over to Hope Community Church. I hope that makes some sense. All right. If you have tons of questions, that raises more questions than you had, talk to me afterwards, and then we'll communicate some more uh, in the days ahead. But I just wanted to kind of give you that quick update. And again, I hope it like reassures you uh, that we're not trying to force anything as a people here. It really was something we're excited about to just say God is doing something here, um, but we're not putting a lot of stock or weight on that name to make us something that we're not. So that's exciting for me as a, as a pastor, not to leverage that but to to lean into it. So let me just pray for us then, and we will uh, lean into this passage. Father, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you're like. Thanks for uh, the ways that you work and move. Thanks for sending your son. Thanks for what he has taught us about you, what he's promised about the Holy Spirit, what he did for us on the cross. Holy Spirit, thank you for filling us. Thanks for sealing us. Thanks for teaching us and drawing us to the Father and the Son so that we can worship them. And so Triune God, I ask that you would be at work this morning in the room. We've had lots of different kinds of weeks. We come from different kinds of places. We're carrying different kinds of burdens. And you know all of those. You care about all of those. And you want to speak to all of those. So, so would you quiet our hearts, um, the way the scriptures even talk about opening up our eyes and opening up our ears so that we can receive from you. Would you do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, so for Advent, we are staying in the book of Matthew and choosing a title that reflects where we are in the story right now. So Jesus has just done the Sermon on the Mount. He's been teaching for these long three chapters about what it means to be in the kingdom. And that sermon ends and you get this editorial comment that those who heard this sermon respond by saying, what kind of man is this? Who has this kind of authority? He teaches like nobody else we've ever heard. And what happens in the story then is Jesus comes off that mountain, and we see in verse 1, he comes down from the mountain, and there's a great crowd that follows him, the same crowd that just heard him teaching about the kingdom. And what Matthew does in verses 8 and, or chapter 8 and 9, is actually now show us what kind of man this is. He's been teaching about the kingdom, 
you hear these teachings and they stop and go, what kind of a person teaches like that? Who, who has that kind of authority? And what Matthew's going to do now is put together a series of stories for us that are historically accurate but are meant to help us understand the authority of Jesus. And so we'll see him heal We'll see him calm storms. We'll see him cast out demons. We'll see him call disciples to himself. And so we've chosen just to kind of sit in this theme of authority because Advent is about Jesus coming as a king. Christmas is a declaration of war. It's more than just a sentimental holiday that we enjoy with foods and gifts and family traditions. It actually is a statement that there is a real cosmic king. And if he's real, you have to do something with him. And as he's come into the world, he's declared war on sin and death. And he accomplished what we needed in salvation on the cross for us. And you're reading the gospel account, really kind of listening and learning and going, what do I do with this man? He has this kind of authority, so how does he use his authority? What what does he do with it? How do I trust him? What is he after? What is he actually doing as a king? And the same question they would ask coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, we ask in Advent. Who is this little child that was born? Who's this child that was born in Bethlehem to poor parents? Who was immediately on the run as a refugee who fled his home country into a foreign land and really grew up as an alien and stranger? Who is this one who grew up in a carpenter's family, almost utterly obscure for 30 years, and then comes on the scene and people begin to say, whoa, this feels familiar, this sounds familiar, the things he's doing The things he's saying, these are things we've longed for someone to do and say for millennium. He begins to fulfill prophecies and keep promises from God that date back hundreds and even thousands of years that he had given to God's people, and now the Messiah comes to fulfill them. And what we'll see throughout the Gospel of Matthew is he comes to fulfill all the promises of God, but we tend to misunderstand the promises of God. So what Matthew wants to do in these two chapters is show us who Jesus is, show us what he does, show us what the Messiah is actually like so we don't miss it. We'll see him correct some people when they misunderstand. We'll see him do some more teaching and instruction. But really in these two chapters, Matthew has strung together a series of stories demonstrating the authority of Jesus. And we'll actually see that word authority multiple times. We'll see it actually in our reading from today. We see that he, he actually interacts with a man who talks about he knows what it's like to be under authority. We see them as he calms the storm going, man, what kind of winds and waves obey a person? This man must have authority. And we come to chapter 9, we see him saying he has the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus is declaring has authority, and Matthew wants to show us in the works of Jesus that he does actually have this authority. And more than just tell us that he has it, he wants to show us what he does with it. So what does it mean to sit under the authority of King Jesus and to see that he has authority over the physical world? That he rules over the physical, storms, disease, death. He rules over all of that. But what kind of a Messiah is he? That is where Matthew aims to kind of help us understand. And Matthew has organized this in a really beautiful way. You see nine scenes of healing or miraculous power. So again, you see casting out demons and you see healing and you see him engaging with people and changing their lives. And what you see is these nine stories are organized by three sets of three. So there's kind of three scenes and then there's a call to discipleship. And then three more scenes showing his authority and then another call to follow Jesus. 
And then three more scenes, and then you get this call to the 12. Not by accident at all. What Matthew is doing is what Jesus said, is you have to do something with him. Come and put your faith into action and come and follow. So he demonstrates what he's like, how he works, what he's after, how you can trust him. And then he invites you to come and follow. So we decided, let's just sit in that for Advent, because that's what Advent is about. It's about Jesus having authority as a king. Authority over the physical, authority over the spiritual, and then authority over your life to actually call you to come and follow. So let me just kind of take a sidestep for a moment. When you read narrative in the scriptures, they are historically accurate stories, but we understand them to be told in such a way to teach us something. It's not just the news feed. He's not just giving us data. The authors are telling us something. It gives an explanation for why sometimes there's some variations in some of the stories. Sometimes it could happen more than once, and so it's not actually the same story. There's multiple healing times that happens. But at the end of John's gospel, he says, hey, Jesus did so much more. If we were to write all that down, I don't think all the books in the world could contain all of them. So, so we know then Jesus did more than what we read about. So when you see the authors choose a story, it's historically accurate, but he's choosing it to tell us something. So we should ask, what does this particular story tell us? What, what does it show us? What's Jesus doing? Because the author could have chosen a different story to show us how amazing Jesus is. So if he's choosing this one, why? So you're, you're meant to ask, why is this story here? Now that's a little different than like allegory, which finds like a one-to-one parallel and some symbolism. So, so some would take that story of the calming the storm and they would say, all right, the world is the sea and the church is the boat and the disciples are leaders. And so they're looking for a one-to-one matches, which sometimes can be helpful, but also can kind of lead you astray sometimes. I don't, I don't mean a one-to-one parallel. What I mean is, why does Jesus say it like that? Why does Matthew highlight that interaction. What is going on in the details of the story? And as we look into those details, we learn a whole lot about Jesus, about his authority, about who he is, what he loves, what he is concerned about. And it's really instructive to us. So, so the reason why we're jumping around just a little bit is because you see kind of the same thing nine different times. So we're going to focus on those first six scenes in the series of Advent, and then we'll come back and kind of close with those last three at the first of the year. But we're going to kind of combine some together. That's why we skipped a little section, because there's a, a movement here of Jesus showing his authority over the physical, which is where I wanted us to start today, which is why Jim jumped one little section there. Okay, so if you're asking then why, why is this here? What is this teaching us? Look with me now in the text. And here's what I want us to see. I want you to see the welcome of Jesus. I want you to see the willingness of Jesus. I want you to hear Jesus' warnings. He has two warnings in this text. And then I want you to kind of engage the wonder of what Jesus does. So we'll go the welcome of Jesus, the willingness of Jesus, the warnings of Jesus, and then the wonder of Jesus. Of Jesus. First, the welcome. So it says he comes down off of this mountain that he's just said he's the king of the universe. And he's just said, build your life upon me. Now, if you are going to say those things and you're now going to try to get validation for what you just claimed, who would you want to interact with? Well, probably like powerful people, people that people look to as in authority already, right? So you want to either cozy up with them or compete with them. You want to go after where the power already is and do business there. But what Jesus does is goes to the lowly. He goes to the outcast. This is huge. He comes down off the mountain, and the first thing he does is he goes to a leper. 
He's encountered with someone who was unclean, who, who was an outcast, who in that society as a Jew was one of the ones who had the promises of Israel, but was seen as dangerous, unclean, unwelcome, lived a life of isolation. So you think like 10 days of COVID quarantine is bad. Think about being totally isolated from all of your family for your entire life. There was no like healing for leprosy. You couldn't like get over it. It was something that you, you had as a condition. So these are people who were seen as unclean. They would have to declare themselves unclean. So not even just like calling your circle and say, hey, by the way, I got COVID. I know we were together two days ago. Just want to inform you. They would have to walk the streets and cry out, unclean, unclean. Talk about like an esteem builder, right? So in those moments, they're doing that. People are then avoiding them. They live straight up outside of society. You couldn't touch them. You couldn't interact with them lest you become unclean as well. Okay, that's the setting. Listen to what Jesus does. Behold, a leper comes to him. This is verse 2 of chapter 8. And knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's heard maybe the rumors of Jesus. He's heard that he promises to be the king. And he says, if you're willing, I believe you can make me clean. And Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. Now, we see Jesus at other places simply just speaking and someone is healed. So he doesn't have to touch this man. So we should ask, why does he touch this man? Why does he actually go that far to step into what is seen as unclean, put his hands on this man and say, I will be clean. He welcomes this man whose society is pushed to the outside, who is seen as unclean, unwelcome, somewhat dangerous who's in utter isolation, it would be like the weakest person in society, this unclean person. And Jesus moves towards him, not tolerating him, not not just being nice to him, he actually touches him. This man wouldn't have been touched in years. And Jesus puts hands on him and says, I will be clean. Okay, the next story. You leave that scene, and he goes walking down, and the next person we encounter is a centurion. It would be a Gentile, somebody who's an official in the Roman army. Now, you might think, okay, that person has authority, but to the Jew, the Gentiles were outsiders. They were excluded from the promises. So now you have one Jew who's an outsider, and now you interact with a Gentile who is an an outsider. And it's not even just the centurion, it's the centurion's servant that we see Jesus actually heal. So not even just an outside official, the servant who's paralyzed has nothing to offer of an outsider is the next person that Jesus interacts with. So a Jewish outsider and a Gentile outsider. Remember, Jesus is doing something on purpose. He's teaching us about how the kingdom is, about who he is and what he's like by by what he does. So he welcomes this leper, and then he welcomes this centurion. The centurion says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And you hear this discourse about authority. The centurion says, man, you don't have to come all the way. I know what it's like. I believe you have the power just to speak it, because me as a Roman Uh, official in the army if I speak and say go someone goes and I say come they come and I say do this and they do it I understand authority and I believe you have the authority all you have to do Jesus is simply say it and Jesus is kind of overcome by his faith he says in verse 10 he says I tell you this no one in Israel have I seen that has such faith I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out in utter darkness. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, this is the kind of faith that I welcome to my table. It's the kind of faith that believes I have the authority over the cosmos, and I am the one who actually you should bow to. So we see him welcome a leper. We see him welcome a Gentile. And in the next scene, he welcomes a woman. Look with me in verse 14. Jesus entered into Peter's house, and he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. She didn't even ask. He just moves towards her, touches her hand. Such a welcome from the Messiah that the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Now here's the deal. In that society, maybe you know from history, uh, we struggle now to honor women well. But back then, they were seen even just as property. So for Jesus to move towards in that community, the gender that is seen as the lesser than, which is not the heart of God, but they're made as equals in Genesis But we see the way the society had rolled things out. Jesus now moves towards the one who is seen as as lower or lesser in society. A leper, a Gentile, and a woman. Jesus first goes to them. Now he'll interact with kings. He'll call disciples. He'll do amazing things that are seen by lots of people. But in these moments, what we see is the Messiah's first activity after declaring his kingdom is to go to those and welcome the ones who've been outside. Why? Because that's exactly why the Messiah came. We have a really complicated relationship with authority. We live in a world right now where lots of authority is being questioned, and in so many cases, rightly so. Even in the church, there's been abuses and misuses of authority. And so even now, you're hearing like the authority, you're doing a series on authority. Seriously, how tone deaf are you culturally for where we are in 2021? So I totally get it. So I actually want to redeem that a little bit by watching how Jesus uses his authority. We have a really complicated relationship. A lot of us have been, have been hurt from people that had authority over us in our homes, in our jobs, in our schools, even again in, in churches. And I think the exposure that's happening to those abuses of authority is both the mercy of God and it is his judgment and his justice. But to see in this space now Jesus using his authority not to exploit, not not to grab something, but to welcome and to give. You have a complicated relationship with authority. I I don't know what exactly it is. If you resist it outright because you think you should be the authority, or you've been hurt by someone in authority, so you're really cautious or skeptical, or you just kind of go, man, I'll never find myself in a situation again where I'm looking to somebody to provide for me things that they can't because it hurt so bad. I know you have a complicated relationship. I don't know exactly what it is, but I know it affects how you deal with authority. I would love just to invite you these next couple of weeks to ask the question of your own soul, like where are you with the concept of authority? And is there a way that Jesus shows his authority that might actually heal, that might redirect, that might instruct, that might, that might help? Even those spaces like where, where women have been marginalized in our society. And you wonder even in the church, right, there's ways that we've just totally missed it historically in the church. And to see Jesus do something quite a bit different. To see women actually having a really important place in his ministry. Even evidences of his resurrection first on the lips of women, which that evidence wasn't even admittable in court. And Jesus puts on the lips of women declarations and affirmations of his very resurrection. Jesus has a way of welcoming those who are on the outside. Now, before you go, that's good for those people. Realize the scripture says from the passage that Matt read earlier from Ephesians 2, you are on the outside because of sin. It's not just those people with those conditions from those situations 
Friends, you were born on the outside as an enemy of God because of your sin. You you came by it by nature and you participated in sin by your own free will and choice. And the scripture says that alienates you from God. So when Jesus is showing his welcome to outsiders, he is welcoming you. He's welcoming you. And you go like, man, I've heard that welcome decades ago and maybe I've squandered it. Like, I know Jesus is real, and I, I said I trusted him decades ago, and now you can't trace evidence of me looking to him as Lord. I would say even now in this moment, to be reminded of the welcome of Jesus is to reassure you that he is still calling you to himself. And repentance is the right reaction to the welcome of Jesus to sinners. And something that we don't just do one time and then we're done, we, we continue to do it, right? To continue to say, Jesus, I need you. Please come help and welcome me. So, so the welcome of Jesus through these people that society actually has on the outside. All right, so now the willingness of Jesus. And maybe this is just really short. Maybe it's just really obvious. Look with me in verse 3. I don't know if the leper thinks he's taking a risk by encountering Jesus, but he goes to him and he says, you can make me clean if you want to. And Jesus says, I'm willing. And to the centurion in this space where he says, I've got this paralyzed servant at home. He's suffering terribly. Jesus just says in verse 7, I will. I, I will come and heal him. There's a welcome from the Messiah and his authority, and there's a willingness to move towards you in your suffering. He doesn't just like categorically welcome you. He's actually willing to step towards you and move into those really difficult places. Now, this raises a question for us. If Jesus welcomes, and if he's willing specifically to heal in these texts, then what do I do with the places where he hasn't healed me? And I think you should bring that question straight to Jesus. Jesus, I'm asking you to help. This is a suffering that's terrible, even according to this text. It's something that I've been praying about, or I prayed about for myself or for, for somebody else. This text says that you are willing. Why have you not healed? And I think it's safe with Jesus, with this kind of authority, to sit in front of him and ask that question. Jesus, would you help me understand, because you seem so willing in this text, why have you not done that in this space for me? I'm good? Just keep going. All right. It's messing with my head. I don't know. You can hear me okay? Oh, it's great. Uh, Very immature. I'm I'm 44 years old. Very easily distracted. Uh, There you go. All right. Uh, Welcome willingness, Jesus, you. Oh yeah, ask him about that. Ask him about that hard question. And here's the space I think that we should go. There are millions of questions you're going to go to your grave with. And God has spoken sufficiently to answer all those questions. He may not spoke specifically, but he has spoken sufficiently. And to the question that most of us ask in this either or kind of framework, either God loves me or he doesn't. Either he's good or he's not. Either he's powerful to heal or he isn't. We have this either or kind of framework that we bring. And sometimes the way God works expands past that to this both and situation. Could could he heal you? Yes. Does he have a desire to heal you? Yeah. Is there a reason why he hasn't yet? Yes. Does it mean he doesn't love you? No. Does it mean he's not powerful? No. 
And actually we see at the cross of Jesus, which is the place that we have to insert information to our questions, because it's at the cross that we see this both and, that Jesus is very, very loving as he goes all the way to the cross. And he is powerful to defeat sin and death through his death and resurrection. So we see both he's loving and he's powerful. But if you know the crucifixion story, you know that's a complicated expression of those things. You might watch that and go, the father doesn't love him. He actually doesn't have any power. He's a victim. And as the story keeps going, what you realize is, no, it's actually the pinnacle expression of God's love and the pinnacle expression of his power on the cross. And so to the questions of, I've asked for God to heal me. Why has he not? Would you insert that God does love and he does have power from the cross of Jesus into your question? And that isn't like as a defeater to say, now be quiet. It's say, Jesus, I know that this is who you are. Would you now speak to me? And the Jesus who shows his authority in these passages is welcoming you and is willing both to move towards you, but also willing to hear your questions. Okay, so there's a welcome, there's a willingness, and there's also a warning. There, there's, two, there's two warnings in this text, and if you look down, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's some of the sections that are in red. The first one, and it kind of probably caught you off guard in verse 4, where Jesus heals this leper, and then he says, See that you say nothing to anybody about this, but go and show yourself to the priest after the gift, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. So he says, I've healed you, now don't tell anybody. You kind of go like, that's strange. Aren't you trying to prove what kind of king you are? Aren't you trying to show your authority? And what we see throughout the early parts of the Gospels is there's such a misunderstanding about who Jesus is. He doesn't want to spread misinformation that all he came to do was to work miracles. They had an expectation of the Messiah that would come and do miracles and would come and defeat Rome and set them free. Jesus came to not just solve those problems, but solve your deepest problem of sin on the cross. And they have a really hard time, though it's clear in the Old Testament that's what the Messiah was to do. They have such a hard time holding on to that. So what he doesn't want to do is now start spreading everywhere. Hey, if you go to Jesus, he'll heal you. It's amazing. Because we actually would settle for the blessings of the kingdom and reject the king himself. We would be content just with the stuff he would give us and miss the whole relationship with him. Miss actually the redemption of our sins. You actually take your sins so unserious that you think if you just got out of the jam that you were in, that would be enough. You're not thinking about the wrath of God. You're not thinking about the effects of sin on you or the sex of sin on other people. You just want the consequences. If the consequences would just stop, you would be fine with that. We settle for the short end all the time. We do it in all the illustrations of dieting and finance. We, we go for the quick win, even though we know long-term it has all kinds of negative ramifications. Your faith is just like that, and Jesus knows that. And who, who wouldn't want to follow a miracle worker? Who wouldn't want to follow somebody who can just speak a word or, or moves and touches and boom, they're healed? I mean, that's really impressive. You don't need faith in a God who dies in your place to forgive you of your sins to want and desire that. So what Jesus is doing to quiet them, say, please don't talk about this yet. People don't quite understand. If you just go around talking about all I do is heal, people are going to look to me in false ways. I want to actually wait a little while till the teaching is more clear, till they understand a little bit more. There's a warning in this text that you and I would misunderstand the use of Jesus' authority and his intention. He didn't just come to bless you. He came to heal the deepest part of your soul that was broken. It's not just external. Your problem, friends, is on the inside, not the outside. 
And he's laboring so that we don't misunderstand that. So the first warning is not to misunderstand what he came to do. He came to actually heal the sin inside of you, not just the external things. And he does both, right? He's compassionate. He moves towards the external. But there's something even about that that's instructive to these questions we have about some of the why is he not moving towards my physical healing the way that I want him to, to kind of look at that space where he's done the deeper work inside of me and ask him to start with that in a way to help me understand. So there's a warning there that we don't misunderstand what he came to do. And then if we go down in the centurion story, there's a warning that we don't understand who he came to do it for. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, it opens up with like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the lowly, blessed are those who are hurting, blessed are those who who are crying out. Blessed are the weak ones is how we read that. And so in this section, as Jesus has moved towards a Gentile, what you see is Jesus' warning is that this Gentile's faith in Jesus as the Messiah qualifies him to come into the kingdom. And he says, that's actually how you get in the kingdom. It's by faith, he says in verse 10. It's not by your family line and heritage because the Jews had grown up rightly hearing that God loved them, that he had made promises to their forefathers. And if they weren't careful, they rested on their family lineage and didn't put their faith in God himself. It's all throughout the scriptures. And so you see passages say, like, not all of Israel is Israel. And you go, what what does that mean? It means not everybody who's born ethnically a Jew is actually related to God by faith. It takes faith. And so he says to this, this crowd here, as they hear this story and watch him and hear him interact with this healing, he says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I haven't seen anybody yet who just says, Jesus, I know you have the authority simply to speak a word. You didn't have to be there. If you just spoke it, you are God, you are Lord. If you speak it, it, it will happen. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and to the west and will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And you say, that's kind of an obscure thing, but it wouldn't be obscure to the Jews. This is the promise of the eschatological meal that the Messiah was going to bring. Big word. The the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end of the world, when everything is closing down, God gathers people from all nations, and it's this huge feast. And so if you're taking notes, write down Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. Isaiah 25 Six to nine is this beautiful prophecy of, of Jesus and the Messiah promising to come and rescue and heal and save and to set a banquet table for the nations. That's what Jesus has in his mind as he's referencing this. He's saying, and the Gentiles are going to be there. And the Jews knew that they would be there, but this idea that he, God was welcoming outsiders, like they might tolerate that, but that he's welcoming outsiders ahead of them would be so scandalous. This is the kind of stuff that gets Jesus killed. Saying these kinds of things to say, hey, it's not your family lineage that saves you. You must place faith in me as the Messiah. I came to actually bring division where you have to make a choice, right? Two roads, two gates, two trees, two confessions, two foundations. You have to make a choice. In that space, what he's saying is there's this misunderstanding of who the kingdom of God is actually for. And so we read this and understand now the teaching of Jesus here is to say the kingdom of God is for anyone who places their faith in Jesus' authority as a Messiah. Not just as a wonder worker, not just as somebody who would heal again. You don't need saving faith for that. Anybody would want that. Anybody would want to get out of hell free. Anybody would want their life to get better. You don't need faith in Jesus for that. You need faith in Jesus to heal what's broken on the inside. To welcome you as an outsider 
in and be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what he is after. So, so there's this welcome, there's this willingness, and then there's these warnings. And those are warnings for us. That we're not just playing traditional games here. We're not just growing up in a certain line of our family and we did what they did. And so even Christmas now is like this dangerous spot where people come to a church once or twice in this season and feel like, I'm good, man. I had this nostalgic experience of my childhood. I've kept the family traditions alive. I'm okay for another year, or at least till Easter, maybe, in, in that space. To that space, this passage would apply to you. It's not the family traditions and backgrounds that save you. It's active faith in the authority of Jesus as the King, as the Messiah who came to actually rescue and welcome you. At the end of our service this morning, We'll take communion, and then we're going to go out singing joy to the world. And when we sing that, would you have this verse in your mind that Jesus offers salvation to the world? He's welcoming the nations, these outsiders, these Gentiles, these Romans. He's welcoming them into the kingdom, and all it takes is faith. He's welcoming you into the kingdom, and all it takes is faith. All right. The welcome, the willingness, the warning, and now the wonder. Let's go to this last story here of him calming the storm. Look in verse 23 of chapter 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Insert like a dad joke here of sleeping on the couch where the kids are going crazy and dad's oblivious to all of it. Like Jesus is just asleep, which means he's at peace. He's not rattled by this. It doesn't freak him out. And what's interesting is these people on the boat were his disciples, who many of them were career fishermen. They grew up on this lake. They'd seen tons of storms. This must be a really, really, really bad storm. So they come in verse 25, and they say, Save us, Lord. We're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Remember, it's faith in him as the Messiah. Then he rises up, rebukes the winds and the sea, and there's a great calm. And then... The men marveled or wondered, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Matthew's choosing stories to show us the authority of Jesus. He's shown us healing stories, and now he shows Jesus has authority even over the natural forces of our globe. Over wind and waves, things that actually were terrifying, they thought they were going to die. Jesus simply again just speaks, and the whole thing calms down because he's the creator. Because he's the one who made it all, so all of it actually responds to his command. But in verse 27, they rightly go, whoa, what kind of a dude is this that just says that and the whole thing calms down? And I think they would have in their mind Psalm 65 that says God actually comes as a deliverer. He heals sin. I think that's verse 2. And then in verses 5 to 8, it says that he is the one who actually calms the storms. So what kind of man is this? Not a regular man. What kind of a man could do this? No mere man. This man must be God. Who can calm storms? Only God can calm storms. So here's Jesus now showing he's not just a healer and a diviner. He's not just somebody who's welcoming people on the outside. He stands as God himself. Lord not only over physical disease, but over the entire world. Showing his power and authority. And they are left in wonder. We're just kind of in the middle of this section, right? Jesus is going to keep going. There's nine scenes here where he shows his power, but this is enough to stop today and go, man, what will you do with this kind of king who shows that kind of authority over the physical world? 
And he's not just saying, you got to trust me for the physical. He keeps driving at faith throughout this entire narrative. So you're meant to say, the one who has authority over the physical in ways I've never seen or understood before, when he now speaks about authority to forgive sins, it's the same kind of authority. The authority to resurrect somebody, to, to heal, to make leprosy go away, to, to heal the paralyzed, to deal with issues of blood, to actually cast out demons. That one, when he says he has the authority and the power to forgive my sins, maybe he actually can. Maybe he actually has that kind of authority in ways that I could, I could then begin to respond to him. I think we're meant to see these stories and, and ask a couple of questions. One of them is this, what do I do with the one who is stronger than the strongest things I've experienced? What, what do I do with the one who can actually have power over the scariest things to me, right? Diseases that I can't control, sicknesses that I can't stop, pe- people actually dying, storms that, I, these are like the scariest things that we can experience. And here's this one showing authority over them in such a way, not only is he not rattled, he has total control and command over them. I think Matthew would want us to see you can trust Jesus' authority because he has control over the things that control you. You can trust Jesus' authority because he has control and power over the things that terrify you. And he uses his authority to break down barriers and to welcome you to himself. He uses that authority to move towards you actually in mercy to come in here. He uses that authority to actually move towards the disenfranchised and to, to change their life for forever. And that wonder that we see, Jesus actually wants to make really, really clear for us. And Matthew gives us an editorial comment here that, hey, this wonder doesn't just stop with the physical. There's another kind of quote or reference in this text. And it's in this story of him healing many people. Look in verses 8. Uh, chapter 8, verse 17, he says this. After all, he he'd healed these demons and cast out these spirits. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So this is Isaiah 53 that he's quoting. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What kind of authority does Jesus have? He has the authority to take into himself the effects of your sin, the effects of your suffering, the effects of your diseases. He, he takes them upon himself. He dies on a cross. He bears the weight of them so that you can be forgiven and set free. And you're meant to ask, hey, what will you do with this man? What will you do with his teaching? What will you do with his claims? What will you do with this man who is stronger than the most scary thing, who overcomes all of our boundaries, who's willing, who welcomes you, who solved your biggest problem and has authority over sin and suffering and the physical world? What will you do with him? And we take communion every week to ask that question out loud in faith to say, oh, I, oh, I take him. I trust his broken body and shed blood as the way for me to be right with God. I trust that what he did on the cross is sufficient for me to actually be healed and to be rescued. And so, so we'll turn now to take communion. And as we take communion, I would love for you to bring the tensions and questions and step inside your soul right now to Jesus and let the broken body and shed blood of Christ inform how you both ask questions and what answers you hope to get from Jesus. 
If you're not a follower of Christ, to hear this communion is for those who are trusting Christ. I want you to feel welcomed and invited. If you're not yet trusting him, though, there's zero pressure here. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin where you can pray some prayers and just in your own heart and your own way, just ask for God to speak to you. If you are following Jesus, I want to ask you to come and take communion. So last week we started doing communion just a little bit differently. There'll be folks up here at the front are holding a basket of bread, and they'll say over you, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And then you'll take a piece of the bread, and you'll dip it in the cup, and they'll say, this is the blood of Jesus shed for your life. And you can take it right there, or you can walk this way on the outer aisles and go back to your seat. Take a moment to pray, and then take communion. And if you need gluten-free or allergy-free, there's over here on my right, your left. There's also some of those little individual cups. If you're more comfortable taking it that way, there's some gluten-free and some regular cups over here on the table. You can just come out that outside aisle there. And, and grab those. But Christians come and reflect on how Jesus used his authority to move towards you to heal. Let me pray, and then we'll take communion together. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Thanks for what you show us about who you are and what you love. And thanks that you used your authority to rescue. You're also a judge. You're coming back to judge a second time. But as you came this first time, you came as a sacrifice to make it possible for us to be healed, not just on the outside, but on the inside. We say thank you and we worship you for that. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.